Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of One Step Beyond. This is a podcast about transformation through leadership. On our show, we have conversations with people who are creating change in business, in their community, and in their lives by choosing to lead. This is about daring to overcome barriers, push past limitations, and reshape our present and our future. You know, I think like a lot of people who are on social media, I have been feeling a huge amount of weariness with it. You know, it's like one day you're just getting overloaded with hopeful memes, like everybody kind of resharing the same hopeful memes and just kind of like, oh, okay, I know this stuff matters. I know it's good, but gosh, like I'm sick of it. On the flip side, just seeing horrible stuff happening, sad stuff, terrible stuff. And you know, like, this cycle of just like this really terrible stuff that just keeps happening and keeps going on. And we wish we could just stop it and intervene. Flip by these people who are like, you know, pushing forward all these like overtly like thoughtful self-care messages, you know, like they come from a good place. And I'd say they probably come because we're living in such a dark time, such a really, really big struggle of a time. So, you know, I, I definitely understand where they're coming from. And I think they come from the best of intentions. But man, you know, I've, I've really been like struggling with the whole social media thing. Uh, but lately, I, I think I turned a corner on it. And the corner that I tried to, to turn on it or that I'm trying to turn on it is just not placing intention on anything, good intention or bad intention, and instead just trying to observe and let things come and go be in the moment, engage with them, and then let them pass, not to mull on it afterwards. And I feel it by doing that, I, I'm just more able to really just like be in the moment and be on social media and kind of share this human experience with people without getting too overloaded or obsessed or avoidant with it. And in that, I think I'm able to really engage more in what's going on in the world. You know, for a few months, I was really just like turning off social media and when you do that, you're kind of choosing to not be a part of the conversation. And if there's a time in you know, society where you got to be a part of the conversation, it feels like it's right now. So with that, you know, I do feel like I'm turning the corner with it. I'm able to engage with it more, uh, not get upset or, or dismissive or avoidant, and also take things in and then let them go as they pass so I can apply my critical thinking to what's in front of me at any given time. So with that, um, we're thinking a lot about anti-racism. And, you know, for the podcast, I'm always hesitant to start talking about something without feeling that we have someone who really can speak to it from a place of like both lived experience, but also like deep understanding and, and learning. And so with that, we're really fortunate to have Crystal Pack with us today. Crystal is a recent graduate from the University of California, Santa Barbara, with a degree in sociology and education. She's got a real passion for diversity and inclusion, and she's worked alongside organizations like the NAACP and Alaska Airlines Business Resource Groups to help create more equitable conditions for people. Crystal really personifies to me not being on the sidelines, like she really gets involved with things. And in that, she's currently the Latin Culture Resource Group co-chair and community outreach chair for the Women's Interactive Network Group for Alaska Airlines. She also uses her platform as the singer of a band called Initiate, which are awesome, really, really recommended band. And she uses that platform to further push the conversation revolving around diversity and inclusion. So 
This is a really incredible conversation. And for me, quite important. Um, my thinking was pushed a lot on this one. And so I'm, I'm really psyched to share it with you. So before we get to that, I want to thank our sponsors, SE Electronics. And if you haven't yet, then please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. So let's get to the episode. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. All right, everyone, welcome back to the show. And for those new listeners, welcome. We're really excited to have you here. So today we are talking to someone that I believe has got so much to share with us on really setting yourself on a path that you choose, you know, not waiting in line, not waiting for permission, but someone who's really decided to take their own space and develop a brand both personally, creatively, and professionally that's making a big difference. So with that, welcome to the show, Crystal. Thanks for All having right. me. <laughs> oh, our pleasure. I'm really, really psyched. So there's a lot to start with, but I, I do want to put right up front. Could you tell us really quickly uh, what you do professionally and then also what you do in your spare time from a creative standpoint? Oh, okay. Um, so actually, uh, professionally right now, um, this is actually very new. I, uh, so I work for Alaska Airlines right now. And with them, um, I work in our lounge, but I also... Um, work with our um, Women's Interactive Network group, and I am the community outreach chair for them. And I also work with our Latin culture resource group, and I am the co-chair for them. So um, that's my professional side. Um, and then my creative side is that I um, do vocals for the band Initiate. Okay. So for those of you from the punk and hardcore scene listening, you know Initiate. They're sick. For those of you who don't, go check them out. So if you are a fan of heavy music and if you are a fan of like really sick breakdowns, you will like initiate. They're really, really good. For those of you who might not like that, but want to check out just a killer band, check out initiate. They've got a record out on triple B called lavender. And then what else from initiate is out there? Um, so we have our um, first LP before long mm -hmm. um, that, oh wow. I'm not even sure of the year that came out. I want to say maybe 2017, 2018. Um, and then we have our demo on Bandcamp. Okay, so, so we only have out. two. That's a lot. That yeah. is a lot. <laughs> All right. So let's get into it. You know, one of the th reasons we wanted to have you on the show was a, a real focus that you have in your life in general, but also moving towards this professionally with uh, anti-racist leadership. Yes. So we have seen, of course, and and I'm not trying to at all sound a little cynical, but sometimes I feel a little cynical of all of these organizations that are doing huge marketing campaigns around inclusivity and diversity and all these things. But there's always the sense of like, are you just saying that now because it's like the thing to say, or are you really putting your money where your mouth is? Are you really creating that change? So from your perspective, are things really changing or is this just one giant marketing campaign? Um. Well, let's see. So, so as far as companies go, um, I will, I will say this. I, I think I'm very fortunate to be in a position where I'm working for Alaska Airlines specifically, 
because I do feel like that is a company that's putting their money where their mouth is. Um, I do know that there was a huge increase in our diversity and inclusion budget over the last year. And I also felt like it was very bold of them to make a statement that they stood with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and that was barely early on, too. Um, whereas, like, I, you know, and, I, and, and I, I, a lot of companies did do that. They did say, like, hey, we stand for the Black Lives Matter movement. But I think Alaska did take it a step further. Um, and I think a lot of that had to contribute with our um, was working and collaborating with um, one of our business resource groups. And um, they're the Air Group Black Employees, Allies, and Advocates. Um, and so that group really utilized the timing and the sense of urgency that was needed with Alaska Airlines as a company to really say like, hey, like not only do we need you guys to just say that you stand for this, but you need to make your employees feel comfortable being able to have this conversation in the workplace, as well as having our guests traveling with us be comfortable traveling our airline and know that, you know, like we have their back in case that anything happens. Um, so, so on that end, I do feel like, um, like I can speak to Alaska Airlines specifically, you know, um, it's like there are companies here and there where, where, you know, it is a little frustrating seeing them, um, come out with these statements and then you hear their employees being like, oh, well, not really. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, and, and I think that's telling about the way that they, um, you know, amplify their employees' voices or not. You know, some companies will just try to squash their employees down and delete those comments and just have that not come out. Um, but Alaska has really tried to amplify those voices and to really kind of see where opportunities of growth are. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I do see where the frustration lies and I do get frustrated myself seeing some of these companies, but um, on the other more positive end of things, like I, like right before my eyes, I am seeing a company that is, I think doing it right. That is really, really trying to like work with their employees and work with the, um, current events and just like going for it and trying to do the best that they can. Yeah. I, and you're raising a good point. You know, I do find myself mired a little bit in cynicism uh, around this. And I love to hear what you're saying, because it is a good gut check for me that, you know, change does take time and that there are organizations who really are doing it. So I love to hear that. If we're going to reflect on you, um, what got you into the fight? Was it ever a choice for you or were you just like, no, like I, I am going to be involved in creating a more equitable society. I'm going to be involved in helping create anti-racist leadership. So for you, was it a choice to get involved or was it just something that you always just had been a part of your life? Um, this is so funny. I actually feel like I, I reflect on this every now and then because especially with entering punk and hardcore in general, I'm just like, how did I get here? <laughs> <laughs> You know, like, you like, because like, I mean, my upbringing was um, like, I wasn't allowed to listen to hardcore music as a kid. You know, I had to listen to that secretly. And so when you think of like, like, at least when I reflect on like, whoa, like, like, not only am I like listening to punk and hardcore music and involved with that now, but like, you know, like my, um, my dear friend, Alec, who's also the guitarist of Initiate, like, really pushed me to be like, no, you should be the vocalist of this band. Like, <laughs> you know, um, it's so it's kind of funny. But um, 
I think that has always kind of been there. Um, that drive has always kind of been there. Like, um, so I grew up in an Asian and Spanish family or like household. My mom is Chilean and my dad is Korean. Um, so I'm a first generation in the United States, um, born and raised here. And so growing up with those cultural traditions, um, there is, you know, like some, you know, like within, at least within Asian culture, my experience, there is a little bit of, uh, I'm not even going to underplay it. There is misogyny within the Asian culture, um, where it be like, um, you know, like the, the first son is favored and, um, they're just like really deep, you know, like cultural traditions that just kind of still have lived on. Um, and, you know, and there's, you know, like I, I do see some good and bad and like carrying on um, tradition like that um, culturally. But I had always been the type that was like, oh, well, why can't I do that? <laughs> you know, and I'd always question that, you know, like I remember one year my brother got to go on the roof and hang up the Christmas lights. And I was like, well, why does he get to do that? I want to do that. And I was told like, no, you have to go help your mom in the kitchen. And um, and so it was just like, but I want to get on the roof. You know, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, that yeah. looks fun. Um. And so I think that as like when I was very young is when I started thinking like, OK, like, why can't I do that? You know, or like, you know, as I got older, it was like, oh, well, why don't those kids have access to education? And I do, you know, um, and my brother's also deaf. So it was like, why didn't my brother have access to learning formal sign language until high school? Wow. Um, you know, like so. So I think that the fight for just overall equity in general started when I was very young. And I that's not anything that you realize as a kid. You just kind of start questioning it. And and so then, yeah, when I was younger, I would, you know, I joined clubs when Invisible Children was like a huge thing. Um, I like had like had created like a little group at my high school and I like had them come and like do a presentation and stuff like that, you know, like <laughs> and. And I had a teacher ask me, like, why are you doing this? And um, he actually wrote this on a little on a little um, piece of wood that he gave to me. I still have it somewhere in my room. Um, and this is like over 10 years ago now. But I said, you know, well, if I don't do it, who's going to do it? Who's going to do the work? And um, so, yeah, I think the fight started when I was super, super young. Um, but it kind of solidified that that was I saw as my truth once I got to college um seeing that there was actual professional work that I could do um and actually make a career out of something that I I thought I was doing as a hobby with like all of these clubs and you know just like asking all of these questions because I grew up thinking like yeah I want to be a pediatrician and having it instilled that like you should be a doctor or you should be a lawyer you know um but then yeah really coming to and and being like whoa I can actually like you know, like make it a job to to like really speak out for people who don't have equitable education. Like that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and they don't tell you a lot of these opportunities in high school. Like, you know, it's it's mainly like, oh, well, you have A, B, C or D careers to choose from. Um, but yeah, when when I was in college, that that really solidified like this is what I want to do. And I don't know how I'm going to get there, but yeah that's kind of where that started. <laughs> okay. Um, so it sounds like you found your voice uh, a long time ago, like far before punk and hardcore, you're already moving down this path. 
did punk and hardcore play any role in it augmenting that voice or focusing a voice or was it just just another platform for you to speak from I think punk and hardcore absolutely helped me shape that voice and also gain um, confidence in my own voice. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the people that I met there and also just fully admiring just like the ferocity that the women in hardcore had that I saw when I was younger, um, especially when it came to like something like when I was younger, like looking in and seeing how like moshing and like crowd killing was just so scary. But then, you know, seeing these women go in and just completely kick ass was like, whoa, that is so cool. <laughs> um, and, and also just seeing how outspoken and how unrelentingly individual these people were like and unapologetic about who they were. Um, and, and that really, really helped shape um that strong foundation that i think i have today of like i don't have to follow these norms to get to where i want to be you know and 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 also my educational experience wasn't necessarily traditional i didn't go from high school to into a four-year university um i went from high school to community college against my parents wishes because they wanted me to go to the four-year um took a break you know, and then went back to community college and then I transferred. And I wouldn't say that's necessarily the norm. You know, that took me almost six to seven years of just figuring out what I wanted to do in community college. Um, but I was also always confident in that, but it was always because I had learned from punk and hardcore, like I do not have to follow the rules of normalcy to get to where I wanna be. Mm. So I do think that that helped shape a lot of um, the current confidence I have in my decisions today. I love, I love that so much. So tell us about your education. So uh, what did you end up graduating and finishing school with? So I went into school wanting to be a biochem major, <laughs> which is so crazy to me now. They're just, um, and I tried, I did try. I did thoroughly try because I loved science. Um, but when I got to college, it was just like, this is just not for me. I am not that like, I'm competitive, but I'm not the, I don't have the discipline to sit down and study a periodic table for nine hours, you know? Yeah. Um, and, um, and it was actually um, my sociology teacher um, when I was a freshman who um, looked me in the eyes and was like, oh, can I cuss on here? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> she... All you want, as much okay. as you want. <laughs> Overtime. <laughs> All right. So um, I was 18 years old um, and I have this this professor look me in the eyes and tell me I'm going to fuck with your universe. And from then on, she she really did. Like, I feel like everyone should be taking a sociology 101 class like that was so eye opening for me. And it was through talking to her that I realized, oh, my God, like I can be a sociologist like that is a career choice that I can choose. Mm -hmm. um, so then. It took a little bit of time before I had finally said, like, you know what, I'm going to pursue sociology. And then from there, I took a break um, from school while I was trying to figure that out when I said science is not for me. Um, and then when I, I, yeah, I took about a year and a half off. Um, and from that time, I had moved from San Diego to Santa Barbara because um, I had a few friends say, you should get into sociology. UCSB has a great sociology program. So 
I went to Santa Barbara City College and joined their TAG program, which is like a transfer admission guarantee where they kind of set you up to make sure that you have resources and you can like get your grades up. You have like all of this help because I wasn't really doing well academically in the science field anyway. So it was like I had a lot of classes I needed to retake um, and then ended up going to UCSB and then graduating last June with um, sociology and a bachelor's in sociology and a minor in education. Nice. So are there any next steps planned or are you just going to work for a while and see how it goes? Um, hoping by the end of this year um, that I can go to grad school for educational policy. Mm-hmm. Um, I was looking at UCLA's programs and also talking to my brother um, because he's also heavily involved in um, educational policy and stuff, but he is more geared toward the deaf community. But um, he has like a lot of friends that are in educational policy. So I've kind of been talking to them more. Um, So the goal is UCLA, but Cal State Northridge also has a really good grad program. Um, So we'll see. I've also been kind of looking at Columbia University. So I don't really know yet. (laughs) Very cool. Okay. So let's, let's bring it back to anti-racist leadership. Yeah. And as you've gone through this process, you, you, you had your voice when you were already in high school and you're already thinking along those lines. You find punk and hardcore, it helps shape that. You go to university. So now you're in the professional world and you're seeing a lot of things that you feel you can make an impact and you can make a change. But beyond just say like the individuals like you or me or people we know, what do you think organizations and businesses can do to hear and act upon marginalized and unheard voices? Like what are the tangible things organizations can do? I think I think it starts with not only empowering your employees to speak out, um, but also encouraging your employees to group. I, I feel like that's a big, scary thing for companies to want for their employees to like group up together and like try to change things up and shake things up. But I honestly think that if organizations and companies are open to that, and collaborating and working that you can get so much done. Um, and I'm such a fangirl for Alaska Airlines, but like, you know, like going back to them, like they have so many business resource groups. They have, you know, the um, Air Group Black Employees Advocates and Allies. They have Air Group Pan Asian. They have a military resource group, um, an LGBTQ plus resource group, um, you know, Native Employees Resource Group, Women in Tech, and like, all of those are just different resource groups that not only creates the sense of community for each other um, to be able to come together and and speak about what's on your mind and like a safe place without consequence, you know, and and then using those grievances and being like, well, how can we change this? Like, how can we support this? And there's so much proven studies that show that community organizing does achieve success within you know, like different places. And so, um, and I think that that's, that's so important. I think that's huge if companies would just, you know, broaden that a little more um, to be able to just get that, um, like just, just open that door to constructive criticism and then working together. Yeah. And by the way, I love seeing someone who's a fan of where they were. It's, <laughs> it, 
Because, you know, in, in my work, I see a lot of people who are um, feel bad about where they work. They feel terrible about their boss. They feel like they're in bad situations. So it's really refreshing for me. You're you're the second person I talked to today on the podcast who like loves where they work. So it makes me feel really good. Um, I love to hear these, especially because it sounds like you have such a good reason that you feel that your organization actually really cares about the things that you care about. That There's like a, an ethical alignment. Yeah. And I've never actually felt any sort of sense of pride for where I've worked before. And I've worked in a lot of like customer service spaces. Um, but no, Alaska Airlines is absolutely the first time where I've been like, yeah, like I, I love working here. Um, and, and the ethical alignment is a huge reason why too. Um, also just their quickness with addressing things like our air group, Pan Asian group after the shootings in Atlanta, the next morning sent out an email to everyone and was like, hey, we're going to have a conversation later today. If you just want to talk about it, just, you know, like just as a space, a collective space for our affected employees to just come together and talk. And I think that that builds community, that builds that like sense of care, you know, and and from there we can start, you know, when you have that confidence in being able to speak to your fellow employees in different work groups too, it's not just frontline employees, you know, we have corporate in these meetings as well as our frontline employees, our operations and um, having everyone come together to build that. Um, so when you take it from there and you have that, you, you build that trust and confidence with your employees, I do think that you can actually start being more comfortable as an employee to start sharing like, hey, I'm having these really weird experiences. Um, can I talk to you about them? And and then from there, you know, you start realizing like, oh, shoot, like, you know, like for like, you know, we have a manager that's kind of being weird and only treating some employees a certain way and some not, you know, like, but you don't know until you start building that trust with your employees um, and then collecting the data from there. But so much of it goes just like unnoticed and untalked about. Well, you've talked a lot about like, trust and really like the outcrop of that is like relationship building and when we're thinking about moving in, into uh, really improving and growing an organization's ability to have not just leadership but like anti-racist leadership mm -hmm. it sounds like having real relationships and real trust is a part of it um but there's also like a ton of fear out there as we're making these really important social and professional changes so do you have any thoughts on how organizations and leaders can like really hold their space and move more and more in this direction of creating this like wave of anti-racism within an organization while also not pushing people out, but bringing them along? So people who might be afraid or resistant, not because they themselves are racist, because they're just scared. Any thoughts on, on how we can do that? Um, yeah, I think... Um... I think it does start with anti-racist education. Um, and and a lot of my passion for that is actually in K-12 classrooms. But being that I'm not there right now, it was more of like, well, how can I start to question anti-racist education in our training? Mm -hmm. um, and and that goes with, and, and we have recurrent annual trainings, you know, um, of like hey like how to just like how to be a cool person <laughs> you know yeah, totally. um, <laughs> um <laughs> we and, we need yeah. to do a 101 of that like yeah. in the world <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. um <laughs> and and 
the space to do it having people who who are fearful of that and bringing them in i think it also um actually my um my manager um her name is sarah she um her and i had a discussion very recently about um how she wanted to be that person that people could come to and and make herself available to have these discussions about racial mm-hmm. inequity and and different sort of hot topics that you know you would otherwise be uncomfortable about um and i think that's so powerful for a leader to be able to email her staff and say hey i can see that this is going on you know like um or actually our our department director emailed us um with a few updates but she also included like i know that the george floyd trial is going on right now mm. um so if you do want to talk about that i am open to it you know like i think really putting yourself out there and having leadership say you can come to me on whatever side you're on about this and we can talk about you know like about this inside outside of work it doesn't matter like Mm. you're not going to get penalized for this by any means um having leadership be open to that i think is huge for um an organization to um be able to to have Mm. um and I'm sorry. What was the second part? <laughs> well, I was, uh, you, you really, you really answered it. It was that, how do we bring people along? So oh, yeah. what I'm hearing here is like, so for a leader to be like that, to have that level of like vulnerability and openness, that takes a lot of moral fiber and ethical fiber and courage too, because like, these are big, scary conversations and like, you, you can take missteps, you could do the wrong thing. Um, it takes a huge amount of guts for people being willing to be in that space. So it sounds like also like making good hires, like people who've got the guts and the courage to really like, it's okay to screw up as long as you can take accountability for it. Cause this like the leader that you're talking about sounds like someone who's got like real courage to be in that space. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, um, and then when you have, when you have people like that in your, in your, organization, you know, I feel like that definitely trickles down to the employees who will, if they're interested in moving up, will hopefully carry that with them, that openness and vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And and also, as I as I said earlier, we have, you know, different trainings when we um, bring in new hires or recurrent trainings that people have to do. Um, but I think also as a company really stating, you know, like we are open to this um, in in Alaska Airlines, um, there's a specific page for diversity and inclusion. And that page clearly states, hey, these are the people in each department that you can go talk to. And it links them right to their email. Um, if you have any questions about anything or you have any concerns about anything, like reach out to these people. These people can get in contact with you. And yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I'm a fangirl for Alaska. I feel like Alaska is doing it right. We still have a lot of opportunity for growth for sure. Um, but I, I do think that having... Um, you know, building that sense of community is is very hard, like to genuinely do within a company. Companies always say like, "Oh, I'm family," and yeah, yeah, yeah. you're you're, but like the reality most of the time is that you're expendable. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> um, but I really don't feel like this is the case for this company. Um, they are building groups that you know different affinity groups for people. Um to be able to come together and then they're also yeah like you said like hiring courageous leaders that have that put themselves and you know like 
also their emotional selves on the line to be able to have these conversations. Yeah, 100%. And kind of an interesting way, I know this is like kind of a redundant thing, but like, you know, in punk and hardcore, you get up there and you're just raw. You're just telling, you're just telling your story. You're doing your stuff. And it's like punk and hardcore is supposed to be this like, you know, this is like, I'm really expressing who I am. Mm -hmm. It's almost in a way like bringing a little like punk and hardcore into your leadership hiring, like bring people in who are willing to be in the fray, willing to be in the conversation, willing to be wrong and to learn and have accountability. So it sounds like your organization's doing really good work and you're saying they can still do more, but like they're, they're doing it in the right way. Let me ask you a follow-up question, though. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of thoughts on this, and I'm real interested in yours. How can companies better focus their resources on social programs? Because, like, companies right now, I think, are just like, holy crap, we need, to, we need to do something. And so they're just pushing out money. But, like, how can they do it better? What are some of the ways they can bring a sharper and a more intentional focus to what they're doing? This is so interesting because I'm actually, I've been racking my brain about the same thing, <laughs> um, especially as community outreach chair. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, like that is essentially my duty to be able to utilize our resources and put them out there. Um, but I actually recently found out the more that I learn about this company is that our, so our old CEO, um, Brad Tilden, he actually just retired yesterday. So his huge thing with the company was making sure that as far as community outreach goes, we understand how academic achievement works mm -hmm. starting from K through 12. And so he and, and a few other people, you know, like they, they started designing different events. So like we have a day where we invite the schools to come, at least pre-COVID, was we invite the schools to come on a field trip to Boeing or to Alaska Airlines and and talk about the different ways that these kids can be pilots, that they can be flight attendants, that they can work here. Um, and also donating money to these schools to make sure that they go to children who, to, to almost close that academic achievement gap, mm -hmm. um, at least within um, Seattle. I don't know how far that goes. I don't know if Alaska is donating to cities outside of Seattle. I'm still, as I said, I was still learning, but at least I know for Seattle specifically, our organization is donating and, and also recognizes that when children don't have access to different resources in school, that they then, you know, like then they don't graduate high school and then they don't end up getting a college degree and that affects our hiring. Mm. So then we can't hire these people with all of these different experiences just because they didn't have you know, they fell short on a few resources to be able to graduate high school. Mm. And so our organization recognizes that. And I think that that's really cool. Like knowing that it starts with our youth rather than it starts with, you know, like the, it does start with the adults that we hire too, but you can go even further than that and start recognizing like, Hey, if your surrounding community, like your future workforce, like can be affected because they're just not graduating high school. You know, you can get a kid who is a great community organizer at the age of 15 years old. You know, like um, we actually have an organization called Eastside Change Collective, and they're great. They are currently working on trying to get security guards out of their high schools. Um, so, you know, you get kids like that who who have amazing leadership experience at a young age, but then maybe they couldn't come to school because they just didn't have a ride to school, mm. you know? 
And that leads you to being truant. And then truancy can prevent you from graduating rather than trying to fix the issue of truancy, which is a whole nother thing with school programs in general. But, you know, like, and knowing and recognizing that that starts with our youth mm -hmm. um, and how that can down the line affect our hiring pool, mm -hmm. because that also then makes our hiring pool not as diverse as we would like it to be. That's because like a, you don't have the kids. That's a wild approach. Like, it's not even like that is not even on the map of something I would be thinking about. Yeah. I'm only thinking within organization what you could do. So that idea of actually like investing within the community, especially in youth and youth education and like essentially saying like we're investing in the community. And by doing that, we're actually investing in our organization 10 years from now because yeah. health, we're, we're helping create like a whole new generation of people who have equal access to education and opportunity. That's like I'm not, that's really, really awesome. I hadn't even thought of that at all. Um, that's super cool. But now here's my follow-up question, and, and I've got a story I'm going to tell after that. All right. Um, have you seen any missteps in uh, how companies are engaging with this kind of work? Um, I, think, I think the missteps is, is just donating the money and then just never looking back. Mm. You know? I think that's huge. Like, yeah, you can put your money where your mouth is, but are you walking the walk as much as you're talking the talk? You know, um, and I, I think that that's almost a cop out. <laughs> that is totally. a cop out. It's not almost a cop out. It is a cop out. It is it's a not cop having out. someone designated to ensure a that that money's going to the right places um, or those resources are going to the right places. And then B, you know, like really just not giving a care after that. There's no actual and in, like the intention isn't genuine. It's just to, the intention is just to make the company look good. It's not to, to actually create the change that you are saying that you want to change. Yeah, totally. This is it. Totally. And like, so do you mind if I share a story? Oh, I don't mind at all. This is what's made me a little cynical about this. And, and I am actually trying to shake off my cynicism about it. Cause like, I do believe that people want the right things to happen. I do believe that. And I do believe that there are better ways to do business and that individuals and teams and organizations are making a difference. But this is where some of my cynicism is rooted. So I work with a lot of like senior level teams and I work with a lot of CEOs and C-suites and, and I see and hear all sorts of things, mostly like really cool and really positive. And there are a lot of stories I can share. And there are, of course, a ton of stories I can't share because of confidentiality. One time I was in a, a meeting uh, with a CEO and his team. And I'll never, ever forget this. It was all white men, except for one woman in leadership in the group. And everyone did their business update for their part of the business. And they were all just like standard business updates. And this female leader got up and gave this business update and had a section in there about diversity and inclusion and had talked about the work that her and her team had been doing within the, their part of the business. And not only did they talk about how they, the work that they were doing to increase the diversity and inclusion and to engage and bring in like different voices and different ideas, she was actually able to boil this down into metrics and talk about like, and this is actually how this has helped our bottom line and how it's actually increased our ability to build business and, and grow our profits. So it's this really well done. The presentation looked good. It was eloquently spoken. It was like just really powerful. And I looked around the room. And all the leaders were on their phones or on their iPads. And then afterwards, the leader was like, oh, yeah, hey, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for that. 
And I was mortified. And so afterwards, I was talking to the leader and I just said, do you want me to help you and your team get better? And he was like, yes, I do. And I said, I got to hold up the mirror to you. Like, this is what I just saw in this room. And he said, oh, listen, this equity and diversity stuff, you know, he's like this kumbaya stuff, all of that. I know we got to put money into it, but honestly, it's just like, it's just a, a, for me, it's just some money that we put into. I don't really care about it. And I was just like flabbergasted that this person had said this to me. And like my jaw was on the floor, like, holy crap. And the more I pushed, the more dismissive they were. And I was really like horrified. Clearly, I stopped working with them very shortly afterwards because I was just absolutely appalled by it. But fast forward to a year and a half ago when there is very serious challenges within our society due to like, you know, very serious violence towards black communities and like, you know, a, a real pushback from North American society. Exact same leader puts up the like, you can already read the post of like, we stand with the community and da da da. And I remember looking at this thing and thinking, this is how I feel about all this stuff is this person literally said to me a year and a half ago, they do not care about this. And then are putting up this impassioned thing because they have to. And it's that because they have to, because we got to do this for the company. So when I think about like anti-racist leadership, I always go back to that thought of like, how much of this is because you have to versus how much of it is because you must, because you believe in it. Like you have to because you're afraid of the consequences of not doing it versus you must because you so deeply believe in it. There's no other choice that you have. That's wow. Crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is why so much why I was like really looking forward to our conversation because like I know you're serious about this and I know there are hundreds and thousands and millions of people that are serious about this. But that still exists. The people who can make those kinds of decisions about how things get funded, where money goes, they still exist. So how do we go about applying consistent pressure and making sure things change? And I know I'm asking a huge question. So any thoughts you have there? Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's a, a lot of thoughts right there. I really think it comes down to you know, grassroots mobilization. Mm -hmm. It just really boils down to that. I feel like sometimes if you, you have to hold your leadership accountable and that starts from the bottom up. And, and it's always been a hard battle. Like it's never easy. It always takes so much time because there's just so much like policy and rules that you have to go through to get there. And, and you know, and then sometimes you just hit a wall. But then I also think that that's kind of cool where social media plays into the whole um, the whole realm of activism, because you get to see these, you know, these employees speak out and say, hey, we tried and this person still sucks, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and I and I and that is, I think, where um, where it kind of social media kind of gets utilized to the advantage if you if your employees can't you know, apply enough pressure for you to genuinely feel it, then you're going to feel it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, but that also takes, you know, people coming together, building that community support, because it's a tiring, tiring journey to, especially when you, when you, if, for example, if you're going up against a, a CEO, like you just mentioned, who just genuinely doesn't care, like won't budge, then, then yeah, I can see that being 
being a hard journey for for everyone involved. But I do think that if organizations, um, it it starts with the employees for sure. Yeah, and you know what you said, it's like hey, from like from the top to the bottom or from the bottom up. But a lot of this stuff is, I think there's a lot of people from the front lines that like are super willing. They're like, I'll sacrifice. I'll, I'll, I'll make the changes. It's the people at the top who have a lot more to lose and they have a lot more power and influence and they don't want to give that up. They don't want to see the world change that we got to apply that, that pressure. So you manage that, the role that technology can play in that and applying that pressure and that kind of grassroots uh, organizing. Um, what can you tell us about digital disparity? Oh, digital disparity. <laughs> so digital disparity. Um, it's so in a nutshell, it's kind of the gap. Um, I mean, it's mainly applied in, in terms of schools. And that um, is mainly used to describe um, the gap between students who do have access to Internet and resources like technological resources and then those who don't. It's kind of also known as the digital divide as well, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, the more that I start living in this pandemic world, <laughs> the more you can start thinking about the ways that digital disparity applies with adults in the workplace, too. Um, it also goes with the argument of like, oh, well, that person doesn't need a phone. They, you know, like it's with um, the whole stimulus conversation of like, oh, well, that person doesn't need a nice phone. Why don't they just get a new one and then pay off their bills with their stimulus type of mm. thing, you know? That also starts going into the topic of digital disparity as well. And oftentimes, you know, those who are most affected by the lack of technology are minority groups. Mm. So, yeah, because when when you brought up the idea of like you know, grassroots organizing and, and the pressure that can be applied and also the information sharing that could be applied um, through uh, technology, when we think of that idea of digital disparity, it seems like that's like a clear gap where people whose voices need to be lifted or people who need access to information might not get it because of this. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So what can organizations do to help around that, to either like help close that gap or to be making sure that people at least get access to information and their voices get, get raised? Um, so I, as far as organizations, are we speaking more on the, like the company side of things mm -hmm. or the school side of things? Cause there's, Either I think or. there's like a, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, when I was working, um, so actually when I came out to Seattle, um, I started working with the NAACP mm -hmm. um, with their education committee. Mm -hmm. And one of our focuses was identifying digital disparity. Mm -hmm. And so within that, um, I started thinking like, oh, well, Alaska Airlines has a women in tech resource group why don't I reach out to them and see if they can help with the fact that students have to wait two weeks to get their computers fixed wow. right now within Seattle public schools and, or, you know, like they're having computer issues or internet is out. Um, and I, I am, a, I do know that um, Seattle did provide um, some sort of like internet access relief for households, but the wait to use your computer was still up to two weeks because if your computer had any problems, it was just so backlogged with other students who needed, you know, the thousands of students within the Seattle Public Schools district. So I guess that kind of meshes both. Um, the way organizations can help remedy digital disparity is one, if your organization has the resources to help the community use them, you know, um, I didn't actually 
think until I started working more with the business research groups at Alaska, I was like, whoa, like we have this, we literally have a bunch of women who are just like, you know, tech nerds and it's so cool. <laughs> like Maybe they can help out. Um, but also schools ensuring that their students do have access and also making sure that that wait time isn't two weeks or like with everyone operating in like a digital world right now more than we ever really have making sure that if you are doing remote work maybe supplying your employees with remote access you know um or if a lot of their stuff is like by their phones like Right now, I don't have a working computer very well, and I'm always on my boyfriend's computer because he works during the day. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> a lot of my work is on his computer. So, like, and I mean, like, I, I'm, I'm think like our our situation worked out where he's uh, like, I also have a computer at work as well, not my own, but it's like the work computers. Um, but you know, like that is like a small little blip in my life of like how like I don't have a working computer. And like a lot of my work I do on my phone or like I'm answering emails on my phone um, because, you know, like it's just my work doesn't necessarily need a computer, but I do kind of need a computer, you know, yeah. um, or like uh, like I said earlier with like the phone and the stimulus thing, like people thinking that like a phone is just an expendable item. You don't need a fancy phone. But like, how are you supposed to respond to emails, answer phone calls for interviews? like get from point A to point B because like I don't know the last time I saw a an, a paper map anywhere <laughs> you know like <laughs> no. if I'm taking the bus and I need to go from point A to point B like I you know like I might get lost if I've never done that before uh. um so it's it's really trying to a pinpoint all of the different steps where you need technology and it, I think it also takes someone to recognize like a phone is just as important as a computer. Mm -hmm. You cannot just buy a flip phone and expect someone to just be good with that. Like, have you tried typing out an email on a flip phone? <laughs> like, no, 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 no. I don't, don't even, want to. <laughs> I don't want that in my life. All right. I got, yeah. I got three more questions for you as we're closing okay. off. Okay. The first is, what's your message for people who are still on the sidelines? Um, so people who, yeah, they want to see change but they're afraid to get involved or they think it's not their fight or maybe they're worried that they're going to make a mistake. So what's a message that you have for anyone who's still on the sidelines uh, as we're moving towards um, more of an anti-racist leadership style? I think it's just allowing yourself to be vulnerable. Mm. I think that that's the biggest thing and, and having your defenses down because um, I think a huge step in and also being an anti-racist advocate is a it's it's constant it's it's an active work in progress and even for myself as well you know um identifying you know things that you grew up with and then and then trying to unlearn them is it's active um but if you don't allow yourself to be open to that to be open to criticism and open to being you know to listening and to expressing your thoughts without fear like because there are some you know like some some thoughts that people could have that it's just like that's just the way that they grew up that is that level of thinking mm -hmm. and you know like if you are the person listening to have compassion for that mm -hmm. you know like if that's all that person knows is like for example if the if someone grew up and 
all they grew up with was white supremacy, mm-hmm. but they're starting to realize maybe that's not the way. Like you have to have a level of compassion for the person trying to unlearn that. Yeah. And especially if that person is on the fence, like that's, that's a major like step in, in bringing someone from one side of the fence to the other, having compassion and also being vulnerable is, is two major, major components. I love to hear that. Um, okay. Second, this is, not on topic, but it's super important to our conversation. Uh, three Southern California go-to bands, hardcore bands for you <laughs> from any time frame. Southern California? Southern California. Oh, man. Okay. So I'm trying to think. I mean, I feel like Inside Out is just like a staple. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you came out with the heat right off there the bat. There you go. <laughs> them um terror mm. who has just been there literally my whole life oh yeah. Um, yeah and rotting out who was actually i was just i mean i think walter's birthday was yesterday i was just like he was so like instrumental in my comfort within the southern california hardcore scene mm-hmm. um and so yeah rotting out is just like the the southern california hardcore band um and i think they will i think that they will stand the test of time excellent right on all right. So final question is uh, anything you want to leave our audience with as we're wrapping up? Oh, you know, I feel like I always forget that this is a question I will always be asked <laughs> <laughs> in, any, in any scenario. <laughs> and I always forget and I never come prepared. Um, I think, yeah, I think the main thing is there's just so much going on. And I think it's so important to take the time to be gentle with yourself. Um, whether it be, you know, like you look in the mirror one day and then you're just like, dang, I look rough today. Just be nice to yourself, you know, or like maybe you didn't get that promotion, but other doors will open. It's just constantly remind yourself to be kind to yourself because it's so easy to just get stuck in that, in that mindset of just like constantly beating yourself up about different things. Like maybe you're not doing enough or maybe you feel you're not doing enough as an ally. Maybe you feel that you're doing too much. Um, just be gentle with yourself. There's just too much going on to like not have a moment of mindfulness about that. Uh, I love that so much. Uh, well, Crystal, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. <laughs> it was super fun. All right. So everyone, I'm going to see you in the outro and until then, Dave, drop the beat. Wow, there's so much I could say about that interview. Um, There were a lot of times where I got a little uh, emotional because, you know, I mentioned earlier in the conversation where I I can feel a bit cynical about this. And I guess I can feel cynical because sometimes it feels like the people in power, they do a real good song and dance about change, but they just switch up the script and and keep doing what they're always doing. It takes a conversation with someone like Crystal to remind me that actually things are changing. And sometimes they change by small steps, and sometimes they change by big, big leaps. But what's required is that we do get off the sidelines. Getting off the sidelines can be so scary. I really love the feedback that she gave us, though, like have compassion for other people, you know, like be persistent with what you're doing, but also be gentle with yourself. If we can do that, if we can commit to being like that with ourselves, but also commit to being like that with others and encouraging that in others. I really feel that we're going to make a big change. 
So with that, um, thanks once again to Crystal for being on the show, and I hope all of you got as much out of it as I did. As we're closing off, I just want to remind everyone that we're produced by Patrick McKechnie, edited by Dave Larson, and our design is done by Tammy Levy. And with that, we'll see you on the next episode of One Step Beyond. One step beyond.